Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 8th, 2016. This is episode 1823 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a great one for you today, an unexpected one. Uh, yesterday I got an email from John Pugliano himself, and it was... Uh, with a link to an article about automation, uh, specifically robots set to disrupt white-collar work, and he made a simple comment, I think they're underestimating, but here's another article about robots taking more white-collar jobs. And I thought to myself, Self, you know, you've been talking about this automation thing, as John has, for uh, about a year and a half now, and you've been trying to drive home to people how disruptive this will be to the economy in the coming 5, 10, 15 years, what it really means, how many people it means pain and suffering for, and you constantly get pushback from the audience telling you it ain't so bad. And I sent John a simple email and it said, hey, would you like to do an off-the-cuff interview tomorrow about this subject and other things that will disrupt our economy? He said, sure. So I called him this morning with no planning, no preparation whatsoever, and we had a discussion that went almost two hours. That will be the main body of our podcast today. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, have you checked out the TSP Gear Shop lately? We offer awesome t-shirts promoting the Second Amendment, the 299 Days Project, the Sentinel Project, and more. We also offer things you just won't find anywhere else, like custom Kydex sheaths for the Mora Number 2 knife. Check it out at tspgear.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. And with that knocked out, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1823, because the episode is 1823. We have a couple, actually three, from Alex Shrug today. We have Why the Night Scar is Dark, Orbler's Paradox. We have Death is Now Optional, Prison Reform in England. And we have the Monroe Doctrine in Honduras. And in other news, this year the raincoat is invented. The game of rugby is invented, at least by tradition. And that song that goes, Be it ever so humble, there is no place like home, is written in this year. It becomes part of an opera and sells like hotcakes. I'm going to read for you Death is Now Optional Prison Reform in England. Back in 1688, the bloody code was passed into English law requiring the death penalty be applied for hundreds of violations, including damaging Westminster Bridge, living with the gypsies for more than a month, stealing a rabbit, or stealing anything worth more than five shillings. In the modern day, that's about 20 pounds sterling, or about 26 bucks. This year, the bloody coat is repealed. The death penalty is now optional, depending on the judgment of the court. It is only required in cases of murder or treason. Chaplains are made available to the prisoners, and regular inspectors inspections of prison are required. Also, jailers will be paid out of the state's purse. The inmates used to pay them out of their fines. And women jailers are now required for women prisoners. Prison reform is here. What's next? Cable TV? My take by Alex Shrugged. I'm a volunteer chaplain at the county jail. I meet with inmates who ask me 
uh, ask for me. We talk about religion, but mostly I provide positive human contact for the inmates. A jail can be a negative experience in more ways than one. Anger, mental illness, and depression are pervasive, and an inmate is trapped with his cellmates. To help the situation, educational, psychological, and religious services are available. There is a beekeeping certification for inmates. Anger management, alcoholism, and drug abuse treatment are available, and of course, chaplains. One day I was working to the minimum, walking to the minimum security building. Ahead of me was a tall inmate. Across the back of his bald head was inscribed a strange tattoo, which marked him as a dangerous man. Suddenly he stopped, turned to me, and asked, Hey, are you running a Bible class? He smiled at me. That dangerous man was trying to improve himself, and because of that, his cellmates were safer, and so were the guards. You know, my take on this is we have a very deep sickness in our society with how we view people that go to prison. Uh, we want people to go to prison to suffer, to, to go to a horrible place. We revel in people going away for a long time. Now, don't get me wrong. There's people who the punishment of prison is probably not enough for. But I'm going to tell you something. For the majority of them, that's not the case. I think people have a hard time understanding as well the recidivism rate for prison. But this is the truth. Let's say a guy commits a crime. It's not that big of a crime. It's uh, a minor drug crime. It sentences him to uh, five years. He does two. He gets out on parole. He goes to for a job interview to I don't know, wait tables at a cafe on the street corner because they'll do anything. And uh, they say, what have you been doing recently? And he says, well, I just got out of prison because he can't lie because it's going to show up on his record when they check. Do you think they're giving him a job in a market like this, let alone even just a good market, even when the market was better? It's not that when people come out of prison they can never find a job, but it is very, very difficult. Now, take the person that did 10 years. No matter what they did it for, when they tell a prospective employer they've done 10 years in prison, what do you think the odds are they're getting hired? Then what are they supposed to do? So what happens? They go back to criminal activity. Because it's all they know, and guess what? They've become better criminals in our prison and jail system. And there's so many people that go so early in their life, and they go in for little things, and they go back for bigger things, and they go back for bigger things. We have a problem in this country that's multifold. The number one problem we have is we sentence people to jail and prison for nonviolent crimes that probably shouldn't be crimes. I'm not talking about you know theft via uh, you know a computer or something like that. We actually have a victim. I actually consider that a violent crime because you've committed a an action against another individual. I'm talking about drug use, drug possession, things like this, and. Because of that, we have not enough space. And because we don't have enough space, we have an abusive environment. And people like Alex go in and do good works and try to help the people that are in there so that they can improve their lives. But unless we do something to help these people when they come back into society, the revolving door will continue. That's really not a historical context, but it's why I chose this. It's a reality. The next time you feel good about hearing that somebody's going to prison for 20 years, think about what they actually did, and maybe it's warranted. Maybe it should be longer. But in many instances, maybe they shouldn't be going to prison 
at all. My take by Jack Spierko. And God bless people like Alex who minister to those people on the other side of those walls because they certainly need it. Thank you so much for that service, Alex, and for your service to our community here at the Survival Podcast. And with that, let's get into our main topic of today. And I'll have to just say, hey, John, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Hey, um, I uh, I know most of the audience kind of knows you because you're on the expert panel and you've also been on the show several times, but we get new people all the time. So could you just up front kind of introduce yourself, talk about kind of your uh, your background as a kid, how you got into what you're doing, and uh, and then we'll get into the main topic we want to talk about today, which is a whole bunch of stuff, leading off with automation and, and getting into kind of the whole spiral that I think we see in the future for our economy. Sure thing. Well, hey, I uh, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. Jack, your your and my backgrounds kind of overlap in a lot of different ways. But I was raised pretty much blue collar kid, Western Pennsylvania. The big event of my life though was that my father died when I was six months old. So I always had that um, thought in the back of my mind that uh, you know things can go bad really quickly. Things that you know, unexpected things can happen. Um, you know, basically for my mother. That's when the crap hit the fan, right? So, I mean, I, I, I just grew up in that kind of environment and um, had the privilege, though, of having some really great grandfathers. They were my father figures. Uh, these guys were not only one of them had not only lived through the, the Depression, but he was also uh, it served in, in World War One. was a prisoner of war. Um, so I just had a really good what we call today a, a prepper background. You know, I was raised around people that were just they, – they were prepared because they were responsible people. And I grew up in that kind of environment. Um, joined the Marine Corps when I was I, I was a bad student, hated high school. Joined the Marine Corps when I was uh, in my senior year of, of high school. And um, in fact, it's, it's like I don't know, 39 years this summer that I was in Paris Island as as a private wow. Marines. And uh, so that was my first real introduction to getting out of Western Pennsylvania. Um, ended up spending seven years in the military. Um, Got out, went to college, had a 20-year corporate career, mostly in uh, sales and marketing of industrial products. I, I sold commodities and machinery, things like that. Uh, but but my real passion was always around the stock market and trading stocks. Even as a kid, it was something I was fascinated with, and I, I didn't have anybody as a, as a youngster to teach me. Um, you know, my grandfather never owned stock. He he didn't. He'd be listening to the ball game, and I'd be looking at the Sunday paper trying to figure out the stock charts. Uh, just because it was it was one of the things that just it just fascinated me. I didn't know what it was, but there was something about it I was fascinated with. So that that fascination became a hobby. Eventually, it became more than that, where I just I kept my day job, but I focused on learning how to trade stocks, and it got to the point where one day I became successful enough where I could leave corporate America and start my own company. Um, and that was at a time in 2011 when I found this thing called the Survival Podcast, which took me back to a lot of my roots. I had always continued to be someone prepared as far as, you know, having 72-hour kits, and, and I had a generator in case the ice storm came or whatever, those kind of things. Um, but I had gotten away from um, the gardening and the farming and things like that. So uh, when I found you and you start talking about permaculture and things like that and even even reloading got me back into reloading and things like that so uh, a lot of the things from my past kind of gelled when I, I heard your podcast in 2011 and that was the same time I was starting my business and um, eventually had the privilege to, to meet you face to face and 
I've been a part of the TSP community for quite a while now. Definitely. And our, I mean, our backgrounds are almost ridiculously similar. Everything. Mechanics in the military, sales jobs. I mean, yeah. a lot of, you know, grandfathers, coal miners, immigrants. Yeah. Pennsylvania. I mean, you just maybe do the math there, and it's, uh, it's 26 years ago uh, this summer that I was in uh, basic training. And one of, one of the only reasons I didn't join the Marine Corps was uh, I was actually talking to a Marine recruiter, and in, in the little town I was in, they were all in the same place. They had like a like a little piece of uh, a building, right, where they had like you, you walk in and there's like a door here for the Navy and a door there for the Marine Corps and a door there for the Army and a yep, door same the thing. Navy. And uh, the Army guy kind of grabs me by the arm and says, are you talking to the Marine Corps? I said, yeah, because you enlisted. Yeah. I said, I don't know if I really want to or not. He's like, what is your score on the ASVAB? And I tell him, he's like, oh, you can have any job you want with us. And I'm, he's like, what are they telling you? He's like, well, they're saying I can probably get the job I want. I'm like, and then he's like, well, he says, what, what do you like most about the Marine Corps? And I, they had a, you know, a recruiting poster there with the dress blues. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was a 16 year old kid when I first started talking to recruiters. And I'm like, look at that. He goes, yeah, you'll wear that once a year. Yep. <laughs> that was actually, that was a sales technique that broke the ice with me that started that dialogue. And when I actually learned they could guarantee me a job, guarantee me on the enlistment term and guarantee me airborne school, I, they lost, the Marine guy lost me. He seemed pretty, pretty upset about it. Uh, but, uh, he was outnumbered. There were like four army recruiters there and one Marine recruiter there. And it was, uh, it was kind of amusing. But I mean, I, I was, you know, I probably had not had that conversation. I probably would have joined the Marine Corps, which is, you know, so vir- virtually, uh, again, very eerie thing. And yeah, I was 17 years old. I didn't know anything when I joined the military. Um, I, I was, I was going to join the Navy because I had heard, the Navy had really good schools. I, I didn't want to go to college at that point. I thought it would be a waste of money. Um, so I thought, oh, I can go into the Navy. I can learn a skill. I can also get on a ship and you know see the world and get out of Pennsylvania. And I went down to join the Navy. And and you know what? I, I looked at them and I said, their uniforms suck. I just cannot <laughs> wear. I'm not going to wear a Cracker Jack, you know, yeah. outfit. And and the Marine Corps was across the hall. I went over and talked to the Marines. I said, hey, we go to the same schools, and you know, our technical schools are Navy schools. Yeah. We have our own infantry stuff, but all of our technical stuff is is Navy. Yeah, I joined the Marine Corps. Wow, wow. So you and I came up through about the same time. You're just a few years older yeah, than me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm about a decade ahead of you. So yeah. I'm, just, I, I'm a, a little bit older and. Uh, and uh, maybe a little bit wiser. Now I'm just plugging that. Now you probably are, um, especially on certain things. So what I w- wanted to bring you on today about, you sent me an email yesterday, and it was just a comment that made me like, we need to get you on and talk about this. And I can't wait for September, which is when our next official interview spot is, to do this. So I sent you an email you want to get on. And basically what you said was, on automation, there's a pattern here, and I think – they're underestimating it. And I don't think you meant just the mainstream. I think you meant actually comments you're seeing from our audience. Did I get pushback every time I talk about this? Is, is that what you meant? And if not, what exactly do you mean by this? Yeah, everybody's, everybody I think is, is underestimating it. We're, you know, we're, uh, we're on that cusp of a real change. In fact, Jack, you said something on Wednesday's show. Let me pull it up here. When you did the, uh, the history update, and by the way, shout out to Alex. He does a great job with, putting those things together. Um, you read on Wednesday's show, this is a quote, people who were 20 years old at the end of the Neapolitan Wars in 1815 will not recognize their world by 1830. Mm. I think that's where we are again today. I think we're at another one of those shifts because of 
technology and um, societal changes, political changes. I mean, that whole thing back then, the average age in the country was 16 years old and everybody was concentrated in a couple of the eastern states on the seaboard. And they had the whole country that they were expanding into. I think we're, you know, well, well at the other end of that now where, you know, now the average age is 35 or something. Uh, we have a much older declining demographic, but the technology that's opening up, it's not land that's opening up. It's, it's technology. Uh, you know, we're getting to a point where knowledge is already free for the most part. I mean, you, there, there's almost no, you know, again, compared to my age, when I look back the way things were 30 years ago, knowledge, information is free. There just, there's, is, uh, there's almost no cost to it. We're getting to the point, I think, over the next 15 years where labor will be close to being free. And that's going to ma have a major shift. Yeah, and I think to put this in context, like, so as fast as things moved in that 30-year period, I think they're going to move a lot faster. And to give context to that, AOL was founded in 1985, but they really didn't do much in 1985, right? It was about 1998, 1999, 17, 18 years ago that AOL really hit it hard and started spamming real mailboxes with the little disk. Remember that? You get the disk in the mail, try AOL, put it in your computer, plug your phone into it, and it made that sound. Right? So it's been less than 20 years since that. And that's when America, indeed, did get online. And I remember it was so fast. By about 2001, I was working in structured cabling, And I would talk to people that got DSL. And do you know what their first question was? I got DSL now. I can't figure out how to get to my <laughs> AOL. And I went, this company's done. Right. This company is done. Because people don't even yet understand that AOL isn't the Internet. My dad, I had a lot of investing conversations with him. He's a pretty switched-on old-school investor. And uh, he kept telling me the Internet's going to go broke. And finally, I got to the point where like, I realized we agreed, but he just didn't know what the hell he was talking about because he thought AOL was the Internet. And if you think about in 1999, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook. There was no Flickr, there was no Pinterest, there was no Slack. There, there was a Yahoo, but it looked more like a directory than a search engine. There was a Google that didn't really work that good yet. People like me that were on the cutting edge of SEO could just make Google do anything we wanted. It was a joke. Um, but there wasn't much to do with it yet. There wasn't a lot of money to be made. I was selling long-distance phone service in 1999 on, on the Internet. Uh, it's like my, my side thing. And look where we are today in less than 20 years. Absolutely. And oh, so yeah. the next 20 is going to make the last 20 look like a freaking joke, in my opinion. Oh, things are moving so much faster. And along those same lines, think of things like just digital photography. Kodak invented the digital camera in 1975. Morons. And, yeah, <laughs> and, you know, and they try to suppress it, right? They try to hold it back. Their, their whole, it was totally destructive technology to everything they did. For, you know, virtually But they had everything a 25-year first mover advantage that they just pissed away. They did, and, and you know, so in 75, they invented it. They ba eventually fought for bankruptcy, like, I don't know, almost 40 years later. Uh, 2012, I think, is when Kodak eventually filed for bankruptcy. So it took them about 37 years to wipe themselves out with technology they invented. You look at something like BlackBerry, which really in about 18 months, Apple put them out of business. You know, and it, it, yeah. it, it, was, it was within existing technology. I mean, it was just going from... 
a smartphone that was smarter. In you know literally 18 months, BlackBerry was was gone, and and they people today I'll say what BlackBerry, what's that? But you go back, you know, 10 years ago, you go back to two, shoot, even you know 2000, probably six 2005. I mean, BlackBerry was dominant. Everybody, well, any executive, yeah, any executive in America had a BlackBerry, and they were glued to. We used to call them crackberries. People were yep. addicted to it. And people would say, oh, that'll never go away. And they were and entrenched. there were already smartphones that were better for browsing the Internet. But what they weren't good at was email. And that's email. why we had Blackberries at my office because that's what I needed. I needed to be able to stay in touch with email and handle my clients after hours. Yep, and the security aspects of it, and it was all tied into the enterprise software. It, it, yeah, it integrated right to our server. You could You could put a new device on it tomorrow. Everything was ready to roll. And when smartphones became capable of that, the BlackBerry was dead. Yeah, and it took another couple that, months, but it wasn't much. But at that time, people, you know, if you, you know, pre pre the, the the move, people were saying, "Oh, but BlackBerry, they're just, you know, they're integrated into yeah. corporate America. They they've got that first, you know, that first uh, mover advantage, and and they're they're on everybody's server. I think are for kids and music and games, yeah. and this is for real grown ups. This is for real men, right? Yeah, and they were and well, they were gone in eighteen months. And I see a lot of disruptions coming like that, including disruptions that are creating opportunities that are then going to disrupt the opportunities. So an example of that to me is Uber. So Uber right now is a huge benefit to not just the customer, but to tons of people driving for Uber. Like Driving for Uber is a good way to make extra money. It's flexible. You set your own hours. The nicer your car, the more money you can make. Uh, the more reviews you get, the faster you get. Re I mean, it, there's a lot of people making full-time and good part-time incomes with, it, with, with Uber. But you know what Uber's doing. Uber is working their ass off to develop pods to come pick you up. And people think that's not going to happen. I recently heard Bill O'Reilly was ranting and raving about uh, uh, some some uh, automated vehicle that had a wreck. Like the guy got in the back seat and was playing with his phone and the car smashed into a truck or something. And like it's just not like, – like just – crapping on it like you know this stuff's like 40 years out it's not ready yet and i'm going you know i wonder how many people had accidents yesterday right, right. because or if, if we took that can you imagine if we took that approach we're going to the moon how many yeah. of the rockets exploded before we got one to work right but it almost became mundane that we could go into space and it, you know making an automated vehicle john this is easier than orbiting the earth it, it, when you really think about it and we already have plenty of vehicles that can parallel park And this is what I was saying yesterday. People our age can parallel park. The average person can't parallel park. Right. If a car can parallel park, it can freaking drive from L.A. to Dallas. I, I have driver assist on my car, and I can get on the interstate and drive for four hours and almost do nothing. I mean, the car the car does it all. It's, 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 it's advanced. It's advanced um, Cruise control, where you know you put on the cruise control. If someone gets in front of you, it slows down, it, it moves up, it, it keeps the whatever distance you set. So it's not only speed, you know, but it keeps the distance in front of the car in front of so you set. A front sensor, because that's the, the issue with cruise control. When you get in any kind of congestion, you, have, you end up turning it off. Right. Because so this, you're like it, it, this, this even you wouldn't use this in a city because it's cruise control. But if you did, it will actually bring you to a stop at a red light. And when the car in front of you moves ahead, if you don't hit the gas, it'll say, you know, car advancing in front of you, and you can just hit the resume button, and it'll, it'll eventually, it'll follow that car behind you at whatever two or three, five car lengths you set until you get back up to your cruising speed. 
And if you if you wander out of your lanes, it'll it'll nudge you. The steering wheel will nudge. And this isn't you know I'm, you know me I'm a cheapskate. I don't drive I don't drive a Tesla. I mean this is a yeah. this is a Subaru. You did say Subaru. You're like, this is a Subaru. <laughs> it's a Subaru. Hey, I'm from the, I told you I'm from the seventies. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, so my, my point with Uber is it's not only disrupting the taxi industry, eventually it's going to disrupt its own driver base. It'll dr- disrupt the driver base and, and it's going to be tied to everything else. I mean, that's, I, I don't think Amazon's going to use flying drones to deliver stuff to us. It's going to be some variation of, of a pod Uber. It's either going to be with, with someone driving it or automated pod well, driving doing it. people already, John. Yeah, they're, do, they're doing, yeah, they're doing people already. I mean, and Walmart, people said, oh, Walmart's going to collapse and stuff. I own stock in Walmart right now. It's doing fine. Walmart's going the same direction. They're going to have either deliveries or actually what, what, I, what I see Walmart doing, which is a, an advantage that, that Amazon doesn't have is, you know, you can order this. It depends what city you're in, but with some of the Walmart locations, you could order your groceries while you're at work and then swing by the store and they'll load them for you so you don't have to go in the store and get it anymore. Um, so, you know, that way it's not like sitting on, the, on your front porch waiting on you. Well, that's, I mean, all the way that's back where in, this economy is moving. All the way back in before 2010, I can't tell you exactly what year, Walmart already requires all of its vendors, with the exception of some little tiny pieces of parts stuff, every package that comes in there actually already has an RFID chip. RFID, sure. You know? So when they take a, 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 a forklift and load an item into a truck and bring it into the new store, that already goes automatically to inventory control. Now, taking that to the point of you put an item in, your, in, in a bag and it automatically charges is not a big deal. And I just had a picture coming from a listener that's not even making it that sophisticated. They just have an app for your phone and you just scan your own groceries. And when you get done, you hit pay. And you pay off your phone, you walk out the door. Right. No, no, it's not just a self checkout cash register. It's basically you, your phone becomes a cash register. Now I need less cashiers. And when you talk like that, people are like, well, the store still needs people for this and that. But I, I, I mean, the single largest employer in this country is Walmart. Take out 10% of their jobs. It's a huge hit. Do that with Kroger, Albertsons, et cetera. And then do the same thing in all the fast food industries. Sure, and we've talked about this before. I mean, even with Amazon, they've got the Amazon Now thing where you you just hit the button and say, "I need more uh, Tide detergent or something," yep. and it you know this stuff shows up in two days on your door. It'll get to the point where you won't push the button. It'll just know, you, yeah. you know, I, my, my printer. I've got an HP printer, and it knows when I need ink. You know, it just can order me ink if I if I want to I'll, have I'll, it just show up. You know, I'll tell you, I sat in a technology presentation back around two thousand two. With a guy that said that they back then that there would be wired refrigerators that when you threw your milk away it would order new milk for you, right? And and, people, and there's commercials out right now where the lady calls her husband. And she's some kind of foodie. She's playing with a melon ball or something, and she's like, uh, he calls her from the market and she's like, can you see if we need eggs? And he says, can you? Because she's in the kitchen, and 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 she's like, I'm busy. So he checks how many eggs they have in the kitchen from his phone. I mean, yeah. you, you have to just go, what's the logical progression? What comes next after that? And, and this, and this again, to, to do the technology analogy, this goes back to, I can remember, you know, 20 years ago when I was uh, editing software when, when uh, uh, what was that, Adobe Premiere, I think, had just come out. Probably, I think it's 20, 20 years ago, right, right around 20, 22 years ago. Um, 
you couldn't do a lot of things, but you could see, hey, five years, ten years, whatever, you know, Moore's Law, as, as things get twice as fast and cost half as much, you're going to be able to have a $200,000 or a million dollar video editing suite. You're going to be able to do that. You know, we need to have laptops in those days. You're going to be able to do that on your desktop computer. You could see that 20 years ago. You, you, you didn't know how you were going to get to that way, but you knew you would get to that path. And that's, that's where we are now over these next 20 years. We're going to see that same automation hit at the professional, the white collar level. Uh, and that's one of the things where, where I think people are underestimating it, both in terms of how many jobs it's going to affect and at what level. Sure, it's going to hit the hamburger flipper things, the fast food, but that's that's fairly easy stuff. Uh, it's it's going to hit the professionals that are right now the least prepared for it. Um, you know the 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 attorneys, the doctors, yeah. the high the high paid people, uh, people in. I, I don't want to say it. I almost said my profession. I'm a money manager. I don't consider myself in the financial profession. But you know, there's the big thing now with with robo advisors. You, uh, I say. You don't. You don't. You know why? Why is a company going to pay a salesman to, to lie to people? They can get a computer to do it for free. You have all these robo advisors now. Um, you know, Betterment, these kind of these places. You answer a few questions and send them their money. They just invest it for you. It's going to hit all those levels. Anything that's repetitive is going to be automated. And there's a lot of things that professionals do that are very repetitive. You know, a, a, an attorney that specializes in a certain kind of contract. Well, that's very repetitive. If that's all they do is just that one little piece of law that can be made into a decision support system through an algorithm, that job's going to be gone. You'll, you'll have a, a paralegal. You have one attorney and a couple paralegals, and they'll do the job of, of, of a thousand attorneys. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you heard about the robot lawyer in London. They got 160,000 parking tickets uh, turned down or fixed over a two-year period. Right. And I did the math. You'd have to, if you were a lawyer doing that, you would have to fix. If you did five minutes per person, you'd have to work a 17 and a half hour day for two years, 365 days a year to pull that off. If you could do it in five minutes per client, and this did it on its own, and. All I can think of is there's this giant billboard on the south side of Dallas as you're coming up I-45 into Dallas, and it says, fix it, ticket, and it's an entire law firm, and they have billboards everywhere that's, that's their thing. They fix, they fix tickets. You know, mm-hmm. and, and they, you can't fix them all, but what they're saying is, you know, we can do all of these things for you, get it off your record, get it reduced, whatever, and people are willing to do it because it's not just the fine, it's, it's the hit to your insurances and things like that. So that law firm is one entrepreneur in America building the same thing from either finding something else to do or being out of business. Yep, and, and it'll be that way in many, many professions. You know, if you're just a standard primary care physician um, where you come in and just do, you know, I don't want to call it low level, but just, you know, moderate level diagnostician type things, that job's going to go away. You know, you're going to be able to have a blood test, uh, you know, spit into a tube or something. It's going to go through a decision support system. It's going to analyze all your body body chemistry, check your DNA 
it'll tell you what's wrong with you. You're not going to have to go to those level of professionals anymore. And I'm just I'm pulling out the attorneys and lawyers just to because they're among the highest paid in our society. And that's where it's going to go first. You're you're not going to get rid of the guy that you're paying eight dollars an hour. You're going to go to the guy that's making three hundred thousand dollars a year. That's that's where companies can make um, the most most impact of the bottom line. Yeah, even if I am the highly paid, the owner of the law firm, and I'm an attorney myself. If I have a large firm with 40 attorneys, multiple paralegals, etc., and I can take my firm of let's say 80 headcount, and I can take that down to 20 and build the same, I have to be retarded not to do it. Sure, and where it really hit it will be the before it hits the private practices, it'll hit the corporate guys. You know, so yeah. like Microsoft, all their all their patent attorneys. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. They'll just, yeah. They'll just knock those guys out because they'll have a computer, which they already have. You know, these computers that are crunching the numbers, they're look, they're doing the patent searches. They know the keywords. We're, you know, we're we're at the point now where we're we're well into voice recognition. We haven't taken it to where it's exactly, um, you know, knowledge based. But but they're getting really close, and when they can when they can combine the algorithms with the actual intelligence, that's when you're going to see a lot of these white collar jobs go. And and people just are not expecting how quickly it can fall when it really when it really happens. Well, see, and what people always say is, well, then there's new jobs, right? There's new jobs, and I, I saw something interesting. It was an interesting analogy that. We only make that that argument for ourselves. We never make that argument for any other thing or species than ourselves. So imagine around uh, 1900, you were a horse in America, right? And these new horseless carriage things were coming out. And, and you say to your buddy horse, you know, there'll always be new and better jobs for horses. We won't have to work as hard. We won't have to go as far. Well, I think the horse population in the United States peaked in 1920. And it's pretty much been in decline ever since until a kind of a resurgence of, you know, horses. But uh, horses aren't used really for much work anymore because cars do the work better, faster, more efficiently, and cheaper. And, we, you know, no human being would have made the argument about the time they figured out that the car was coming, that there would always be a job for a horse. But we rationalize it for ourselves that, oh, because we're people – That won't happen. And I think the other thing that's different is with the whole there'll always be new, better jobs. First of all, you're eliminating so much at one time that there's not so much for other people, places for other people to go. But, yes, people have to build, work on, maintain the robots, even though some of the robots are going to maintain themselves and build themselves. But the adaptation required for the skill set to be able to do that, when a guy's 40 years old, 50 years old, He's not going to have time to adapt to that. So the, 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 speed, the speed, the requirement, and the reduced headcount necessary, and then the, the lack of ability to adapt, and then this, uh, this disbelief. I think this is the, mo the worst part about it. We refuse to deal with this. We refuse to accept it. And that's going to make it worse. It's like ignoring the hole in the boat until the water starts you know, going over the rim. Yeah, and that's uh, – personally, I'm optimistic Because I, I do see the changes being beneficial for, for me and the way I'm headed with my life. But I totally agree. I think that for, for most people, it's not going to be beneficial, particularly people that you know have their head in the sand. This is one of those things that it will happen rapidly. And there will be road bumps along the way. 
labor unions, government, different things will try and slow it down. The market itself will slow it down because anytime you have new technology, it has to happen because of investment. So you're only going to get people to invest in the new technology if they're if they're you know customers to purchase it. So to the extent that everybody loses their job and nobody has any money, well, there won't be any investment. So I mean, there will be natural slowdowns along the way. But again, looking at the things that we've talked about, the the Kodaks that have gone away, the Blackberries that have gone away, the the telephone books that have gone away. I mean, all these industries they eventually go away, and and many of the jobs that we think right now are are uh, required, you know, white collar, mid-level management type jobs, they will be replaced. We, we're at a point now where for the last probably five years or so, um, really since a, since a few years after the Great Recession, we haven't really seen any productivity improvement. That's why you're pretty much seeing a, a flat um, uh, corporate earnings right now. They're, they're, we're, corporate earnings are either declining or they're flat because we just can't get any productivity improvements. We've gotten to the point where all the computers and all the things that are in place are not making people more efficient. People are even arguing they're making people less efficient. You have, you have people sitting around on Facebook all day at work instead of doing their job. So and yet the co- see, here's the scary part about that. And the company's not going broke with that. So you, no, you, you, no. because because they already fired everybody during the, yeah. <laughs> they got rid of ten or fifteen percent of the people during the recession. So they're they're uh, and, and that's my fear with the overall stock market right now too is that it's overpriced because we're We've we've made those profits from eliminating the people five, six, seven years ago, but we haven't put any new productivity improvements in place. So we're we're kind of sitting on our laurels right now. But that but that's kind of precisely the point of where technology is going. You're going to see companies they are going to invest in this in these new technologies, and they're going to tr- you know the place where they're going to make the most money is getting rid of those white collar workers. They they don't have many uh, labor people to get rid of anymore. I mean. We're gonna we're gonna go into the political realm here right now, but yeah. Donald Trump right now, what's he saying? You know, make America great He's again. He's gonna bring, bring jobs bring back, jobs we'll back up the the the, the manufacturing. There, there's no jobs to come back. Those the jobs that left here. And again, when I was a kid in the '70s, those jobs were going to Japan. From Japan, they went to Taiwan and to uh, South Korea. By the time he got into the '90s, all these jobs went to China. The, those labor jobs are done now. They're, they're all robotics. I mean, you go to a, an automobile manufacturing plant, no one's painting cars, right? It's all robots no. painting cars. Um, none of those things are done by humans anymore. They're not going to be. And so the next place for automation to hit is going to be that white-collar level because the, the blue-collar jobs have already been you know, pretty much decimated. And, and, and you're right. They're not coming back because even when they left, they left for cheap labor, but even the Chinese and the Japanese are automating. Right. So it's not like the jobs are over there. Yeah, they're never coming back. When when cell phones, you know, he says, you know, we want Apple phones to be made in America. Yeah, they may indeed make Apple phones in America, but it's going to be a big factory with no employees. There's, there's not going to be any people doing it. Well, and here's the thing. Unless you change the, the corporate tax structure, Apple cannot bring their money back to America. No, not yet. And, and I'll tell you, that's one of the, I think, my, my biggest concern outside the U.S. is these, you know, what we call merging markets. When they do change that tax law, and that's that's coming. The next president, whether it's Clinton or Trump, they're gonna there's gonna be a major tax revamping. That is one of the last things that's keeping a lot of things, 
you know, for example, in China that shouldn't be there yeah. because of automation. China is going to get hit worse than we are. China is going to have to devaluate their currency. They have factories upon factories that are built over capacity, you know, 1980s technology. It, it, we don't need that anymore. No. Nat, natural gas in this country on a nominal price is what it cost in 1980. Now, we know how much our dollars devaluated since 1980, and yet you can buy pretty much all the commodities for the same price you could buy in the 1980s. Natural gas, you know, natural gas, $2 a million BTU. Copper, a little more than $2 a pound. That's in, you know, that's in nominal dollars. So these prices are cheap enough where if it was, and it's not even the labor, it's it's the regulation. It, that's that's the thing that's keeping things out of it's the labor, US. It's, it's the regulation tax and it's taxes. And here, let me explain the tax thing because people don't get this. So if if Apple's got about eighty billion, if I if I got it right in, in China right now, if Apple brings that money back to the United States right now, they will take a thirty billion dollar hit on it. Okay, do you know what would happen the day they did that? A class action law firm would sue Apple for fiscal irresponsibility on behalf of all of its shareholders, and they would win. Because it would be fiscally irresponsible to take a $30 billion hit for patriotism. And it would cost every Apple shareholder that money. It's not just going to cost Apple that money. It is a public company. I own Apple stock. You probably own Apple stock through I funds do. or whatever, right? So it's going to cost us. So whether we want to sue them or not, someone's going to sue them on our behalf. And you would win that cold. You could not make a defensive case for bringing that money back to America under the current paradigm. They would love to bring that money back to America because if things go south in China, they have to be afraid the Chinese government would seize assets. Yep, and that's that's the whole problem that people don't see this this devaluation of currencies and these rules and regulations that keep the money out of America. When that changes and it does come back, we do have. I mean, it makes sense to make Apple phones here. Why, why wouldn't you make an iPhone here if the components, the plastic, the natural gas, the energy, uh, shipping costs, all that will be less money when they can make it, you know, in a factory in Nevada or someplace. That will come, but it won't. But it won't be creating any jobs. There'll be 200 jobs instead of. Well, you solve the job problem with automation. That solves the overhead costs with healthcare. Right and all the other things you have to pay to have an employee because now I don't need that and you solve the tax problem because I think the Chinese corporate tax rate is twenty five percent versus ours is forty. I mean, if as a business person you give me a choice between twenty five and forty, patriotism be damned, I'm going to take the twenty five. There, there's no monetary case for them to do that right now other than what you just laid out. But you clear those two roadblocks, you clear the cost of overhead of labor and the tax uh, hit. And they'd have that money back here as quick as they can do it without screwing things up. Yeah, and, and that's why that same model is. I mean, that's why so many car manufacturers are still in the U.S. They, again, they talk about bringing jobs back to America, but most of the cars are. Well, I'm, 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 I'm exaggerating here. Many of the cars are still made here. I mean, my Subaru is made in Indianapolis. Toyotas are made uh, in Tennessee. Yeah, BMWs are made in South Carolina. I mean, they're 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 here. Um, and the, the reason they're here is because it's it's cheaper to assemble them here than it is to ship them over, because they have those plants are highly automated. You don't have um, you don't have 
physical people, you know, putting the wheels, the, putting the, the, the lug, butt, lug bolts on the on the tires like you used to in the old days. And, and here's the other side of it, and this is again the, the 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 tug of war in our economy right now. Because things are built by robots and by automation, they're better, right? My car, any new car today, you're going to run a hundred thousand miles before you even change the spark plugs. That wasn't the case. 30 years ago, you know, one, because of technology, and two, just because of the way things were assembled. There was, there was a lot of play in things. Not, not everything was, um, you know, was machined exactly the same way. You had different people running those machines, and so there was always a, a little bit of gap. You don't have that now with, with automation. So things not only can be made cheaper, but they can be, be made better. They can be made to last longer. That keeps taking jobs out of the supply chain. There used to be people that, you know, repaired TVs for a living. Those, that, those are gone. Those jobs have been gone for, that's probably been gone for 30 years. Um, but you can just see those little elements throughout the whole supply chain. That's where automation's taking us. Um, so, so bad. It's going to be bad news for a lot of people. I can, I can really see where half the jobs could be gone in the next 20 years. The people that are working though, the people that, that, find ways to uh, to advance themselves. For them, I think it can be phenomenal, though. I, can, I think it can be a great lifestyle, but there's going to be a lot of turmoil. I, I've, been, I've been studying this, trying to look at different trends and things, and I've kind of thought of this in terms of it's like a cruise ship. We're going into a cruise ship economy. If you, uh, if you go on a cruise, you know, where you, you get the love boat kind of thing, you know, you have a, a bunch of middle-class yeah, middle, middle, upper middle class people spend you know a couple thousand dollars to go on a cruise, and at the high level you have just a very few jobs. You know you've got the captain, uh, you've got the the cruise director. I mean these are kind of like the the, the government elite yeah. that they keep things in order, and then they have a very small technical staff. You know you go back again thirty years ago on a big ship that that would hold thousands of people, you'd have to have you know fifty engineers down there. Uh, you know, oiling things, making sure everything worked. Well, nowadays it's, it's all, they're all electronic engines. They're all sealed. You got one technician that sits at a control board and pretty much operates the whole ship. So you, you got this, you got this small bureaucracy at the top. You've got all these tech technicians that make sure the air conditioning and the electronics work. And then after that, that whole next layer of staff, it's all people from uh, emerging markets of third world countries. You know, the, the, the waiters, the waitresses, the, all the wait staff, uh, the, the people that, uh, uh, you know, do the laundry, all that. They're from Sri Lanka or they're from the Philippines. And, and that's, that's the economy, right? So you have this, you have this wealthy middle class that goes on vacation. They go into that boat and most of the jobs are, are, are they're being taken care of by, you know, by these people from emerging markets, Th those people that, that are working from the Philippines, they're sending their money back home, in, you know, remittance. They're taking care of all their extended family on that money they're making on the ship. That, so that's, you know, you look in the automation side of it, what they automated on that ship, they didn't automate all the low-level jobs. They automated all the high-level jobs. Sure. And, and again, that's where I think we're headed. You're going to have a lot, you're going to still have a lot of low-level jobs, but the, um, the thing, that pyramid at the top is going to keep getting smaller and smaller. Well, and I think then eventually that trickles down, and you do have your low-level jobs go at the same time. And I mean, yeah, long-term, sure. Yeah, and the other thing is, so then you you lose that entry, that entryway, 
where the 16-year-old kid that needs their first job can find a first job. Because I, I don't know about you, but in, 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 in a lot of the small towns that I've been to, if you go into a Walmart or you go into a McDonald's, there's 35, 40-year-old people working there and actually seem like they want to be working there. Like if when I, I had my, my my first job at 14, I worked in a Burger King for a couple of weeks until I turned 15 and could get a job somewhere else. And if you would have told me at 14 that I would be working at a Burger King or a McDonald's when I was 35 years old, I think I would have just shot myself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Fifteen years old, I was delivering room service in a hotel, and that's the exposure I got to the business world, how to make you know how to make money, dealing with with people in the professional world. I got it through that entry-level job. Those are going away. That's what we see in the economy now, too, where you have, you know, I think we're at uh, labor participation rate right now, I think is right around just about 63%, a little bit less than 63%. Yeah. But it's it's really skewed to the older people. The older yeah. people are holding on to their jobs, and the ones that have lost it, they're going out to to you know, get the greeter jobs at Walmart. The younger kids and the labor participation rate is, is much much lower. They're they're not getting those initial jobs, and then the old people aren't getting out soon enough for the mid level people to move up. Um, that, yeah, that's a that's a, a big problem that that again isn't going to go away demographically. We hit oh I guess it was probably 1999 is when I think we hit the peak for for labor in this country. How many how many people were employed? Probably. 67, 68% of the workforce, 1999. It's been in decline through the recession, and then it's come up a little bit since, you know, since 2009. But still, only at about 63% right now. Mm. You go back to the 50s before women were really in the workforce, you were below 60% participation rate because, you know, half half the people were women. Didn't they work. Was, they didn't work. And so when people argue now, well, hey, how could you lose all those jobs? Well, shit, we could we could go from 63% down to 59% and just be back to where we were in the 50s to begin with anyways. When everybody uh, thinks it was great, right? When everybody thought it was great to begin with. Yeah. The, the yeah. difference now is, though, that you got you know 90% of the women working and only 30% of the men working. Well, yeah, and um, before we move on, I kind of want to bring one more thing up with that because I want to talk about kind of the demographic issue that we're dealing with too. But – with seeing the people who keep jobs longer, another place that that I really love in the world is Sanibel Island, Florida. And this is kind of a touristy area. But when you go to the grocery stores there, all the people working there in their 30s and 40s, all the restaurants, the waiters, the waitresses, the, the bartenders, 30s and 40s. And and I mean, when I say 30s, I mean like 35, 36. I don't mean like 31, you know. And you talk to these people, a lot of them have degrees. And you start to realize, like, these people have been in their jobs for 15 years as a guy working behind a deli counter. Now, look, I'm not putting that down. I'm not saying that's not a, a noble profession or whatever. But let's be honest. I can train an 18-year-old kid to slice ham with a slicer pretty damn quick, right, and to use a scale and to use a cash register. It's not a complicated job, and it doesn't pay that great. And when you have people that have been in a job like that for 20 years and plan on being there another 20 or more before they quit – that starts to tell you about what's available for them opportunity-wise, and it, it pinches off again that opportunity. Like you know, the job I left Burger King for was uh, stocking shelves in a grocery store. Well, I see guys that are forty years old stocking shelves in grocery stores now. Yep. 
and, 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 the, and those jobs, when those are replaced, because again, they're repetitive, you don't need people to do them, there'll be no place to go. And where does that person go? That's my exact point. The 50-year-old who gets pushed out of stocking shelves or running a deli or whatever it is, where do they go? Yeah. And when that's where we're going to get to the, the Indian reservation economy. Um, I, I know, you know, when you and I have talked before, uh, I don't think you think that we can support a, uh, a minimum wage, but I think that's, I think that's where we're headed. You Not know, a minimum saying, wage. You mean an alternative uh, minimum income? Uh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Exactly. I do. No, I don't think we can support it under our current economic paradigm. We have to change the economic underlying system to do that. But I think we could. I think the government could go to a, God forbid, a true fiat-style currency and simply create the money and spend it into the economy through a system like that. And I think that's where we're headed. And I think, and it's that, again, it's this tug of war that we're seeing right now with all these shifts in the economy because are we headed to inflation or are we headed to deflation? Well, the technology yes. is actually bringing about deflation, but it's, but it's the government printing a money with debasing our currency, which is tugging on the inflation side. You know, if we get to the point where labor becomes basically free, then you're going to have the cost of everything going down. We can we can stockpile and house people in all these universities and all these retail stores that are going to go out of business someday. You know, people won't be going to college because the degrees are worthless. People won't be shopping at JC Penney's because you can get all that stuff online. You know, we're gonna we're gonna house people in those places to make them senior citizen communities or whatever, uh, high density living, and it's gonna be very affordable to you know heat and cool those places, give the people a virtual reality entertainment, uh, give them you know, soy you know, soybean and uh, <laughs> uh, corn you know corn based derived foods. It's, it's all gonna be horribly unhealthy, but that's that's where we're headed. We can. You know, a farmer can feed, you know, in the 1930s, you know, one farmer fed, what, you know, four families. Today, one farmer feeds hundreds of families. We're getting more and more to that point where there'll be less jobs, but the, 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 um, the government will keep enough people around and keep them happy. Bread, it's going to be bread and circuses. Yeah. It's I mean, there's, be a very lot, affordable. there's a lot in that that makes me think of some recent stories. So one is that in Europe, they're actually proposing a robot tax. So if they, the employer, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a, you know, an animatronic robot, but employs a technology that effectively eliminates a job, then when that employee leaves, they pay a certain a sort of a payroll tax on the, the technology versus the employee to keep their Social Security equivalent running. Sure. So that's, that's one that you start to see like how that could be done. Um, and then the other side of it is recently I read and are you talking about the farmers an article that said the price of high-end LED grow lights has gotten so low that they can now grow organic vegetables in New York in a warehouse for less money than importing it from California. Whereas in the past those types of technologies were so expensive about the only thing people grew with them was pot. Right. Because right? you had to have an uber high dollar crop. You couldn't make your money out of freaking romaine and arugula. But but they are now able to put it on the shelf at the supermarket for less money. And those indoor farms don't use anywhere near the labor of an organic farm in California. They just don't because they're very high stacked and they're so they're laid out like like an Amazon warehouse. So you can use automation to, to pick, to plant, to do everything. 
And, and I think as the cost of sensors and all these things get lower, again, good news, bad news. I think for people that, that want a permaculture type lifestyle, that want to have good real food, I think that's going to be helpful for them because we are going to be able to farm and grow these uh, real food products for a fraction of the cost. Well, I, you know, I'm thinking about it myself. It's going to be the general population. I've got this big house. I got two guest rooms upstairs I don't use. I'm out here fighting squash bugs and freaking thrips and stuff like that all the time, fighting drought. It's a hundred and freaking million degrees out, right? And I'm thinking I could set up a, a system up in one of those rooms that can produce for Dorothy and I. Are you kidding? We'd be giving stuff away. No pests, perfect climate control, less irrigation. I don't have to worry about my, my ducks eating it. So why am I fighting it in my own backyard? Why don't I just let that be what works on this ecosystem and take all the vegetable production indoors? It, it, it makes perfect sense the more I think about it. So it, it, then you start to have another effect. If that becomes cost viable for the average person to do, and that's not a lot of work. It's not like like some of you you like gardening, I like gardening, but in the end it is work. Whereas growing, you know. Five heads of lettuce and, and six bits of arugula and a couple squash plants and stuff in like a hydroponic style uh, or uh, or even a, 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 a like a, a metallurgic mix in an automated system with microgreens is actually if you're only doing it for yourself versus trying to feed 20 families it can be 10 minutes of work a day. So then you start to move food production into the home, which I'm all for, but that's again that's less demand to the major systems. Right, and even on your ducks and things. I mean, if you have a chip that costs a dollar or goes to a penny, you're going to be putting a chip on every one of your ducks. You'll know where they're at. You'll know what their heart rate is. You know if they need water. I'll um, know when they stop laying, and they'll turn into sausage. Exactly, and and when when they when they all want to go out, the the, the gate. Will, you don't have to go out there and open the gate. The, there's going to be a sensor on the gate. It's going to know the ducks are, you know, mama ducks herding all the all the little uh, ducklings, and they're going to walk through everything by themselves. Well, and that, I mean, the, the and truth people, is, the truth people, is, the day I can't get eight eight dollars a dozen for the eggs, I'm making a whole bunch of sausage, and there won't be many ducks here anymore. Sure. There'll be a, and, maybe a dozen for my own personal use. The only reason they're here is they rehabilitate the land and somebody buys the product. If, 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 if a market disruption forces the value of a duck egg down, it's not financially viable for me anymore, and I won't do it. It's, it's a significant amount of work. We're doing it more for land regeneration, but the cost-benefit analysis is, and they more than pay for themselves. You remove that, and i got to find other ways to do this. Yeah, or, or or you'll just have one or two ducks for yourself, yep. and it'll all be automated, and yep. you can go take a vacation, and the ducks can still take care of themselves. And people say, well, hey, this is crazy. This is not going to go that way. Think about simple things that we've already seen in past history. The population of Florida today is exponentially more than it was in the 1930s because in the 1930s, there wasn't air conditioning. No one was going to live in Florida you know, yeah. 1928 yeah. In, in July. Well, people yeah. live there all the time now because of air conditioning. You wouldn't and, want to live here right now without air conditioning. You, you, yeah, wouldn't be that. living in Texas. I mean, why do people live in Dallas now? Well, because there's, there's, we, we've controlled the inside environment. And so, you know, again, with natural gas being at $2 or less and us having several hundred years supply of natural gas, we're going to be able to have very efficient energy use. We're going to be able to, you know, Things like you mentioned, LEDs, that's going to bring more and more things either inside or where we're able to control the, um, you know, the outside environment. So, 
you know, again, where I, I live in, uh, in Utah, I'm out here in the desert. You couldn't support three million people in the Salt Lake Valley a hundred no. years ago, but you can do it. You can do it today. And that's the way technology is going to change. It better. We can do it better than we're doing it right now. And we're going to, and like you say, natural gas is, is the fuel of the future. It, I, I love the idea of alternative energy, but we're not there yet. There needs to be a bridge that gets us there, and, and gas is that bridge. And all of the peak oil freak-out stuff, you can just relax. In 1980, I had a textbook in school that said there would be no oil by the year 2000. I, I remember the graphic in my head perfectly. Well, it's 2016, John, and I see a lot of oil. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's forty five dollars a barrel today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's as cheap and as it was. You had gas and and frankly coal to that, and they're getting better and better with coal technologies. I I believe we can burn coal cleanly. I just don't know that we can mine it cleanly. But uh, that's another thing. Let's talk about something else that, that wraps hey, it. One other thing while we're on energy, yeah. don't discount nuclear. Nuclear oh, yeah. nuclear has not gone away. Uh, I keep watching for investment opportunity. Um, well, I think the, 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 the next because they would do it is thorium. Because that, that eliminates so many of the safety concerns. Basically, you, you see what happens in Fukushima when there's a problem, right? right Those right. were old reactors, though, to be fair. But it's still, it's the same technology. A thorium reactor, it just stops. If something goes wrong, it just stops making energy. It just shuts down. It doesn't go into a meltdown. Um and I think we could do that, and I think that's being held up for a variety of political reasons. It's mostly political, and that's why I, I'm watching that as an investment opportunity, that whole innovation in in nuclear energy. And I think it'll go that way. And, and again, it, it'll be one of these societal flips, though. You're going to get people so worked up over CO2 and global warming that they're going to they're gonna actually – the same people now that are opposing or have opposed nuclear energy will be coming on board for nuclear energy because sure. of global warming. Especially with thorium technology, and the reason they pushed it out in the beginning was nuclear power was a way to develop nuclear weapons. Well, we don't need to keep building old-school nuclear uh, reactors to further nuclear weapons technology anymore. We, we, can, we, can ev we can evaporate the whole world if we want to by now. So we don't need that as an excuse for parallel development anymore. So there's no good reason to not go into thorium other than legacy technologies and the people making money off it. So if they go into thorium with nuclear, we continue to expand what we're doing with natural gas. Your energy concerns are good for 200 years or more. Mm -hmm. So then, then it becomes what do we do with that energy, which will be the cheapest energy mankind's ever had. And at the same time, developing the alternative energy. I think solar has a future. It's just, it doesn't, it, it, until it will run an air conditioner, it, it's not enough, right? Because of what you said earlier. But, so let's move, because we've been on this 50 minutes, geez. Um, demographics, I think, is another thing people don't understand. There's what we call a demographic bomb out there. Not only do we have all of the things we've been talking about up till now, but we are not reproducing at a rate to sustain things like social security and to sustain like the next generation. So we're going to have less people in a relatively short period of time. And I think people think that's another myth, but the numbers don't say it's a myth. No. And you can look to, you can look to places like Japan, which is about, uh, you know, 20 years ahead of us. You can look to Europe, which is about, you know, 15 years ahead of us. They're, they're already hitting those, those demographic time bombs. Um, there are, there are countries even in Europe, places like Russia, which, uh, you know, they're just, they're just declining. I, I forget, I think, to, 
Russia in 10 years is going to be, you know, 20% smaller. Japan is, is, you know, we're already seeing a, a major decline there. J- Japan, unlike the U.S., you know, they don't promote any type of immigration. So the only thing that's really keeping us afloat is the immigration. Our, we, you need 2.1, fertility rate of 2.1. Uh, burst per woman to uh, to sustain the population. I think the U.S. is 1.6 now. Uh, last time I looked at the figures, the only country in Europe which was at that sustained rate was France, and that's pretty much because of the the tax policies they have there, which which encourage um, you know they give long long uh, labor times and things for their for people after they have babies, so they they encourage it in France. But the the whole Western world uh, is declining. You're seeing that, especially in Japan, which, again, explains all the automation that's taking place in Japan. Yeah, definitely. And I think, like, part of all that, too, is you see other countries starting to do things to try to spur reproduction. Canada has a huge um, program now. You get money for having kids, basically, every year. And it it seems like they're trying to stave that off. But I also think that, like, I don't know that that's really going to work long term because – Today's young people don't want to have kids. Well, yeah, and that'll be the, I think that'll be the shift in the in the technology as well, though, too, because if we do lose half of our jobs, we're not going to need all the people. It's that 30 to 60 year transition period, though, where in the meantime, the Ponzi scheme of Social Security goes bankrupt and, you know, the, the tax system breaks down. So, you know, long term, you don't necessarily need all the people, but it's those next 30 years in particular where it's really you're gonna have you have more people than jobs, and then at that point maybe they will adjust. Well, I you know I'm not a, a, a doomsday guy, so I think eventually we adjust, but there could be a lot of pain in the middle of these things. There'll be there will be tons of pain. That's where I think we get back to that that we talked about the Indian reservation economy. I I think that you're gonna have a lot of people if half if half if more than half the people are not working. And right now we already we only have labor participation at 63 percent. If half more people become unemployed, uh, you're going to have a huge amount of people that are paid not to work. And you see what happens on in societies that that occurs. You know, I- I Indian reservation has nothing to do with American Indians. It just happens to I use that as, as an analogy. But yeah. when you when you're paid to not not work or not pursue, you know, your pursuit of happiness, you end up with the, the highest alcoholism rates. You end up with the highest diabetes rates. You end up with the highest suicide rates. That's that's where society goes when they're not engaged in meaningful work. It's not even that. It's when people don't have any concerns about struggle, they tend to abuse themselves. Um, and I'm not saying you know really hard, harsh struggle is a good thing, but if you look at other places where there's high incidences of suicide and drug abuse and things like that, very wealthy people, especially entertainers, sure. that don't have to worry about their paycheck, so... If you're not out on tour, you've got all this time. I might as well drink. I might as well do dope. I, you know, whatever it is, it's not that they're bad people. It's that we haven't matured as a species to figure out what to do with that free time yet. Yeah, they don't have the purpose. So you know, the people, the people that win the lottery, the extreme rich, the trust fund babies, they don't, they don't have that uh, that challenge to survive. Yeah, look at celebrities that, that end up. Lindsay Lohan is a perfect example, right? Sure. And it, it is. It's what happens to a society. And I think, like, we, we could transition to a society that has 
a great deal of stability is for, for not worrying about whether you're going to eat tomorrow. I think that's a great thing. But then there still has to be some sort of meaningful upside. So if they ever do this minimum income or whatever, then it needs to be kind of like, and if you make money, they don't take any of that away from you, right? Because that's one of the big problems with the welfare state today. People that are on welfare are afraid to try because if they try and fail, they lose what they have. Right. And that's, and that's, I mean, that's a problem with the Indian reservation. It isn't that the people wouldn't necessarily want to work on the Indian reservation. They're in most cases prohibitive. You know, that they let them do gaming. They let them do certain things like that, but they don't, they don't let them use their land in a productive means. And, uh, you know, otherwise they lose it. So you're not going to lose your benefits. I'm not going to give up my, uh, you know, someone that's on welfare is going to say, well, if I get a job, I lose my health care. So I'm worse off than if I don't have a job. So yeah. they, stay, they stay on welfare. And that's true. You could get off welfare, get a $15 an hour job, have more money technically, but have less money when you do the economics because just health care alone, if it's not included in the job, you're better off with free health care. Yeah. And, that, and, and that's free what, housing and, you know, whatever else. I mean, that's why I'm really disappointed in, in Trump. And not that, not that I'm disappointed because I didn't expect anything from him anyways, but Rather than hammering away at we're going to bring back these jobs, he should be hammering away. I, I think he should be hammering away at we're going to cut the red tape. We're going to cut these restrictions. Uh, you know, because again, when I look at myself starting my own business and I talk to people that started their own business, people that I talk to aren't worried about labor costs. It isn't, you know, people aren't saying, well, I'm not starting a business because, you know, it's, it's too expensive to hire labor. They're not starting a business because of the, the red tape they have to jump through, the, the OSHA requirements, the EPA regulations, the, the IRS. I mean, those are all the reasons that, that, that people, small business people find themselves having trouble. That's why I went from being an owner in three companies employing over 200 people to a one-man show doing a podcast. Yep. I'm, it's I'm not a, worth it. That's right. I'm, I'm a one-man financial operation. I don't, I don't, anything I don't, can't do or don't want to do, I farm out to uh, contract work. I, I don't want any employees. You and I speak the same language. And then other things we have to worry about, like we just had this shooting yesterday in Dallas. You and I were talking before we got on the air. If you start having more incidences like this, the effect on the economy from that can be huge. No one's talking about that today. Everybody's talking about the Black Lives Matter thing, back to blue, political implications, making excuse for gun control calls, all that stuff. But we were talking about how back during the whole D.C. sniper thing where it wasn't a single shooting and gone away – the, the effect that had on kind of the D.C. area all the way down into the southeast. Yeah, any kind of shock to the system can, can is going to be super disruptive, and it's going to promote this whole thing we're talking about with technology, too. It's going to promote more of that. So we're going to end up with you know more security cameras, more surveillance, which is, which is in the end, will put policemen out of work because you won't need – detectives to go solve crimes because everything will be wired and you'll you'll know exactly who committed the crime but yeah i, I think i think our the biggest pro, you know we're, we're in 1968 kind of territory right now with with all the civil uh disruption civil disobedience struggle between the races between the uh socioeconomic systems not not only in the united states but you know i think a lot of that had to do with why uk voted to get out of the uh uh the, uh, the EU, the whole Brexit thing, I think a lot of it had to be with those societal changes. So we could see homegrown terrorism, whether it be, uh, you know, is, is Islamic uh, terrorism, whether it be white supremacists, whether it be um, you know, black groups that are fed up with, with the police. 
whatever it is, that could be a major shock to the to the economy right now. And it would only take a couple couple snipers to shut down the country. Just a few. Indeed. I mean, and it's 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 not that difficult. People think that like that takes somebody that's highly trained or something. I mean, the DC sniper was two yahoos running around in a beat up old car with a hole in the trunk. Yeah. In the end, that's all it was. I mean, it took them months to find them. Months to find them, and they only found them because they basically got stupid and started communicating with the police. Had they not done that, who knows how long? And imagine if that was three or four. I've said long ago, like. Um, You know, could you imagine the damage? Uh, four, four, four guys with late model cars and a Texaco card setting fires randomly across the country could do. Just that alone. I mean, it, 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 we are vulnerable, and so is every other country. I think what people don't understand is like killing someone who doesn't know you're trying to kill them if you're willing to do it is relatively easy. Because we all walk around every day. If somebody, you know, I don't care who you are, you'd be a Navy SEAL. Somebody walks up behind you and shoots you, you're dead. And, and and people don't want to feel vulnerable, so they don't want to look at that. But as soon as you start having these these types of attacks, people start to feel that way, and they start pulling back from society, and you can have major economic disruption from that. Sure. Well, I mean, it was in Dallas in 1963 that Oswald killed, you know, killed Kennedy. It was a sniper shot. Um, th that that showed, I think, the the vulnerability of the of the you know the most powerful man in the world. And that vulnerability in the society we're in today, I mean, with with the Occupy Wall Street and the hate, hating globalists and um, all, all these different groups feeling that they're being held down, you can see where, you know, just a few sniper rifles, you could start shooting CEOs at, at, at banks or, you know, shooting CEOs at um, Monsanto, right? I mean, these guys are yeah. – that's, that's why uh, – that's why uh, – Facebook guy Zuckerberg or whatever his name is has uh, I read the other day I forget how many hundreds of millions of dollars they spend on security just for him his you know him and his wife and their kid the, the security bill is astronomical yeah definitely and I, I when I look at all this I just see how it's all intertwined so these acts of violence are you know occasionally these acts of violence are by somebody that's just a sick twisted person that would kill anybody if we lived in freaking you know oz right it wouldn't matter you know no matter how great things were there's people that are murderous assholes but a lot of this violence is coming from people that are frustrated they feel like they have no opportunity they feel like they have nowhere to go they feel like there's nothing for them they get involved with drugs or whatever it is and and they get into a violence culture and then they feel like Black people in, in the United States today think feel like, in some instances, they feel like it's open season on them by the police. Now, I'm not saying that's the case, and I'm also not saying it's not that some cops are not really, really abusive and should not have the job. I'm saying it's somewhere in the middle of those. But if the person, the perception is the reality. If you start having all of this disruption to employment on top of this, where if you look at black young men, one of the most unemployed demographics in the country, if not the most. And that gets even more difficult. You can only expect that you're going to have more acts of violence. Yeah, and, and it only takes a small. You said it before about it. It only takes a small percentage of, of police or law enforcement or, or government bureaucrats to be bad, right? If, if only three percent of IRS agents are are bad and come after you, well, <laughs> they can still do a lot of damage. Yeah, and and I think that the The insecurity and the discrimination that, that young blacks feel has trickled throughout the 
the United States throughout the economy. I think it's hitting other people, not so much with police. You, you and I talked about things like the IRS. I think there's a lot of people that are are concerned about the IRS. They don't think they're going to get a shared uh, a fair deal on it. Um, you know, Edward Snowden's hiding in in Russia right now. Hillary Clinton's running for president. It, it, it all depends on who you are and how politically connected you are. And if you're just a 18 year old black kid, you're not very well politically connected. If you're some, you know, 50 year old white guy, you're probably not very politically correct connected either. And so all these people are are are, um, are concerned and apprehensive about the intrusion of government. 20 years ago, I'm a pretty law abiding kind of guy. You know, 20 years ago, when I saw somebody pulled over along the highway, first thing that went in my mind was, I wonder what that guy did. Yeah. Today, when, today yeah. when I see somebody pulled over, I say, I wonder what that guy's going to get accused of. You know, to, to my, 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 my mind is to my paradigm is totally shifted. Yeah. I mean, th today, this morning, I saw someone pulled over while I was filling the pools for my ducks out on my, my road. The first thing I did was grab my cell phone. And I actually am pretty close with a lot of the sheriff deputies around here. And, uh, they seem to be some of the best law enforcement officers I've ever been around. I still have a suspicion whenever I see somebody pulled over. And I noticed today, for the first time I've ever seen it, that there were two officers in the vehicle. And then I saw another sheriff's vehicle and talked to the guy briefly, and they had two officers in the vehicle. They don't do that here. This is a direct response to what happened yesterday. That, that they've now doubled up, and they have two officers per vehicle. And I asked the guy why, and he said, well, obviously you know. I said, well, how long? He said, we don't know right now. So they're amped up. Sure. So. The, the powder keg now is set for more of these, and it becomes like this, this snowball rolling down a hill. Because the cops are more on edge, there's more likely to make a mistake. Because the black community is upset, they're more likely to react to it. Because they're so amped up on both sides, it's more likely that even if you have a justified shoot, that it's going to be seen as just killing another black person. And... I don't have a solution to it other than we, I, I, to me, I think the solution there is you have to get off of the whole, whether it's black or white. I think you have to get abusive force use by police officers is one of the most heinous crimes we have. And the only way you'll get a united front and actually get something done about this problem, and I do believe it is a problem. Like I said, if it's three or four or five percent, it's, it's thousands of people with the force of the government behind them, with a badge, with a gun, with a taser, with tear gas, with chains, with, with a cage, right? That's a problem. It's much worse than having 3% of your population being bad. Having 3% of your law enforcement being bad is a huge problem. And I think that's probably at least a, a minimum number that we're dealing with right now. And then you have the legitimate people that are just freaked out because they're worried that they're going to If you're a cop today, you have to be afraid somebody's just going to shoot you. Right. Sure. So you got the same feeling on both sides. And it, it, it's it, it's a crazy thing. It is 1968. It's 1968. And you have all you. So you have all this political turmoil. You have, you know, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump rising up above the establishment people. And at the same time, the S&P 500 today is you know, half a percent off of all time record high because everything's great. we got a good jobs report. Interest rates are historic lows. And yet we have all this brewing under the surface. Yeah. So throw your money in. It's a, it's a rising tide that floats all boats, right? 
no, no, I don't think that's probably a good idea. I mean, what do you think people should be doing for themselves right now, short term and long term? Uh, as far as uh, stock market goes, you mean? Yeah, and life in general. Yeah, well, stock market, real quick. I'll, I'll just say that uh, I personally, I'm about, I'm a little more than thirty percent in assets. So I, I continue to think that this is a kind of market where we have a, you know, five to six percent upside, and could very, very well have a twenty-five percent downside. So, um, as, as far as my own personal money and money I manage for clients, pretty much we're thirty, thirty-five percent in in equities. Mostly dividend type things. You know, I, you mentioned Apple earlier. I, I own Apple. I own Starbucks. Um, I own some. I own Disney. I own some obscure things like, uh, uh, especially paper companies, and uh, dabbling in some different things like that. Uh, I'm short oil right now for for my own personal account. I, I think oil is going to go lower. And uh, like I say, we were almost at fifty dollars a barrel. Now we're down to forty five. So I think oil is going to continue to uh, to go down. Um, Things can get really dicey. Uh, my, I, I'm, for example, I'm in a Switzerland fund right now, which because of everything going on uh, with the Brexit, that that's not doing very well. Um, so, so be cautious. Uh, I, I wouldn't go more than 50% in the market right now because I think, you know, we, yeah, we can get, you know, we're, markets up year to date maybe three and a half, four percent. We can get another two to three percent out of that, but but we've never had that that 25% correction, which. You know, historically comes every five to seven years. Uh, interest rates this week went lower than they've ever been. Uh, we're up today, but we had hit somewhere like 1.37% on the 10-year Treasury. The only time it had been lower than that was during the the, uh, the financial uh, fiscal cliff, they were calling it, back in 2012, uh, right when uh, – presidential elections, Barack Obama was getting reelected. They were worried about the Republicans maybe taking over both houses of Congress and shutting down the government and all the austerity. That's, um, and that's, if you think about it, that's back when gold was, you know, gold was probably $1,700 an ounce back then. Yep. Uh, there was a big panic. Interest rates went down to like 1.4, 1.38, something like that. Well, we went lower than that this week. And again, you look at it, well, hey, the market's at all time highs. Uh, did almost 300,000 jobs in the jobs report this this week for for last month. So everything looks like it's real rosy in the United States, but at the same time, why are why are we at depression level interest rates? I'm cautious with that. I'd, I'd encourage people remain cautious. So what's worked in this market for the last uh, 18 months, 24 months is sell you know buying the dips and selling the peaks. Whenever we get up above 2100, sell. Whenever we get down below 2,000, buy. Um, I'm 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 not that active. I, I consider myself an active trader, but I'm I'm in the pr- preserve my capital mode right now, so I'm yeah. not actively trading like that. I've I've made less trades in the last 18 months than than probably at any time in, in my my trading history. So I'm I'm more concerned about you know the return of my principal than the return on my principal right now. Uh, as far as overall jobs and things like that, careers, particularly for younger people. I wouldn't have them be discouraged with all the automation we're talking about. I'd encourage them to to embrace that. You know, go out and 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 get educated with uh, with either technical degrees, things like engineering that that they're going to be able to apply in a more advanced uh, automated economy, or learn a skill. There's there's the skills are never going to go away because they're they're not based on just being able to make things with your hands. They're based on being able to solve problems. And 
So I think the real winners in this economy, you know, even 15 years out after all this automation hits, the people that can still use creativity and kind of merge that with wisdom, their wisdom and maturity, and then being able to um, to integrate things, put it all together. Because the, the, the special you know, up till now, the last 30 years or so, the specialists have really dominated people that concentrated in one particular field. Right now, you know, again, we're getting to that point where knowledge uh, knowledge is free. Information is free. You don't have to spend 30 years studying something. You can go out and Google it, and you can you can get the facts that you need to know right away. So uh, sort of the guy that can be a jack of all trades and integrate things. It can, can take the knowledge from the legal system and take the knowledge from the medical system and take the knowledge from entertainment, right, and put those all together with a new product. Those are the people that are going to succeed. That's why you're seeing the Ubers. That's why you're seeing these other disruptive technologies taking off is because they're, uh, you know, Tesla, Tesla isn't a car company, right? Tesla's merging cars and automation and lithium batteries. Tesla is an energy company. Yeah, they're, they're a technology company, right? They're taking, yeah. they're taking energy, they're taking cars, they're taking electronics, they're taking solar energy, they're, they're merging all those, inter, you know, SpaceX, that's all part of Elon Musk. He's taking all these things and he's integrating them and then he's coming up with products. He's making a different car or he's making a different type of power wall. Um, those, and, you know, Apple did the same thing, right, with, with the smartphone. They didn't invent the cell phone. They just made it better. They integrated it. They took basically a laptop computing power and and put it into not only a, a phone for communication, but it's also an entertainment piece. And then they backed it up with, you know, the iStore and with streaming music and all those other things. So it's the people that, that have the creativity and can integrate ideas into things that create products and services. They're going to do the best. You know, if I had to pick one job, I think people going into cybersecurity would be, that would be the number one. If I was a kid right now and I, I could... I could figure, you know, if I knew how to do it, that's what I would, I would learn cybersecurity. Uh, you know, we had a, just, just this week, uh, Wendy's restaurants announced they, they had a cyber attack and so all their credit cards and debit card numbers of their customers are out there. We saw that happen at Target a couple of years ago. We saw this, the hit at, at Sony where all the, um, uh, their whole database of, uh, CEO emails, all those things were all, were all hacked. Um, Democratic National Committee, a week or so ago, they got hacked. That's that's a problem that's not going to go away. So cybersecurity would be my number one job if I was a young kid. And what, what are your thoughts on that, that for disruption to our economy? Hacks, uh, stealing information, things like yeah. that. You know, when that Sony thing went down, and I guess that's been a year or two ago now, I was shocked then that the market basically yawned. It didn't do anything. But that, to me, was really a turning point to say that any company – can can be so disrupted that at the highest levels, you know, all that if people remember back to that, they had all the emails from the entire company. So they knew all the personal communications from the CEO all the way down to, you know, the lowest level workers. They knew what the celebrities were being paid. They knew, you know, all these little intricate comments. That and that could be made public um you know, like like Manning did with the uh, with the WikiLeaks things. You know, he he walked out of the the, the army office that day with just a, a you know a CD or something that contained all this data. So you can just within an instant put something out on the internet, and and even if it takes people years to go through all the data, you can just have some really secretive or 
compromising information out there, I I think that could break. I think that could bring down the economy. Uh, imagine if I mean if they if if we have hackers that are sophisticated to go in and steal everything and stay there for years and learn all the intricacies of the company, then they could just be putting, you know, in an instant, you, you could have the top 50 Fortune 500 companies that have been hacked. And, and one day, all at the same time, instead of having a sniper go out and shoot a couple of police officers, you could have a bunch of fake emails come out from the CEOs of all those companies and all these different employees and just totally disrupt Well, the entire the entire economy. Well, you hear about foreign actors all the time, and they want our military secrets and all. I mean, the biggest thing that motivates people in this world is money. So, if I am a foreign actor, and I'm especially for a government level foreign actor, where we have lots of money, how 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 hard would it be then to do what you just said and move into short positions against the U.S. stock market and, and extract massive amounts of wealth? And by the time anybody figure out what's going on, that money's all gone. It's already gone. Right. It's one thing if it's like, you know, remember Ivan Boisky took the, the, the hit back in the 80s or whatever. Like if it's a person. But if it's if it's a nation or a, a high-level component of a nation state, they've already moved the money out, converted into their own currency, and they don't give a damn. Yeah. Well, I mean, what are you going to do, had... declare war on them? I mean, it, 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 that doesn't fix the problem. Sure. And we had that just happen with the with – the, um... The World Bank, or either International Monetary Fund or World Bank, where a couple billion dollars, you know, ends up in the Philippines, and somebody goes and takes it, uh, and that's that's somebody just trying to steal something. You know, yeah. Well, that's the other just thing, right? You talk about Manning and Snowden, right? These guys got the information and then released it, right? Yeah. They didn't use it for their own gain, right? It, the the average person that attacks and gets this type of information is not doing it. Because they want the American people to know the truth. They're doing it because they want money. So they don't disclose that they have the information. They use the information. They sell the information. Yeah, and, and even, you know, with what we just talked about, you could have a scenario where someone doesn't even steal anything. They just cause enough disruption to where they've shorted the market and then legitimately they know that the, you know, they know because stocks are going to crash, they legitimately make the money. They don't even have to steal anything. I mean, they're legitimately making a profit by crashing the market because of, of cyber attack they did. And, you know, we're not even getting to the point where you could they could go in and just change all the ones to zeros and all the zeros to ones. Um, I mean, if somebody and, and and it could be done by by a government to, to uh, you know, for a cyber attack, it could be done from a political group. It could just be some individual that just wants to screw things up. I mean, that's what's So, uh, so much of a concern about as we become more and more automated. I mean, I'm not worried about electromagnetic pulse or something, you know, coronal mass ejection. I, I think it's going to be some type of security threat, cybersecurity primarily. Yeah, you know, could, could be as could be as simple as a few people with sniper rifles causing disruption. It could be one hacker goes in and or all just, of the uh, above. Yeah, or, or or a couple couple incidents at the same time. Uh, yeah, whether coordinated or coincidental, either either or, doesn't really matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I mean, the you look after 2000, it was it late 2001, early 2002 with the uh, the anthrax mailing. That, you know, what maybe th three, four people died, I think, but it was a it major disruption to the mail system just because white powder was being mailed, and you didn't have to 
had, didn't have to mail real anthrax. You just had to mail something that looked like Johnson's powder. and Johnson's baby powder. Right. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of I mean it's a, we're a very fragile, very brittle system. Uh, but that again that creates opportunities. So people need to stay creative. They need to they need to focus on uh, on providing products and services that they can integrate that they can they can disrupt the system with. And I think uh, I think the members of the TSB community are pretty smart people. Every everybody I met has been really smart, sharp people with a, a lot of varied backgrounds. And um, I think they're going to be able to as long as they don't get pessimistic. I think they're going to do well. Uh, one final thing before we leave, you, you've hit on it and danced on it a couple of times. We've never gotten into it yet. Uh, the education industry is a multi-billion, tens of hundreds of billions of dollar industry. I don't think people understand the size of the college industry in this country. Uh, and that's all being fueled by easy acquired loans. Oh, debt. And, and, and then we have a confluence of events, more and more people defaulting on their loans. Yes, the government guarantees it, but... Now we're talking about $1.1 trillion, I think, in outstanding student loans and growing. The only debt other than mortgage debt growing in the country is student loan debt. Um, so we have that. Then we have a, a disruptive jobs market. And then we have basically, like you said several times, information, education is almost free today. So you have students thinking, why the hell am I going to go into $200,000 worth of debt? for a job that I may or may not get when I can learn most of what I need to know for free and then maybe adjunct that with some kind of micro or nano degree. So don't you think, because I've been saying, I think the whole education industry over the next 20 years is just going to crumble and, 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 and have to be totally different than it is. Don't you think that is a major economic hit that's coming one way or another? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, when we talk about these white-collar professional-level jobs that are going to go away, that, that education is definitely going to be one of them. And that's the middle the middle grade person that goes and gets a college degree, right? Like there's engineers and there's people with STEM degrees and all this stuff and doctors and what have you. But the, the person that goes in and gets a four-year degree that takes six years to do it in communications or marketing or some generic degree, it's that white-collar job they're looking for, that, that general purpose, middle management, you know, decent money, decent income, decent benefits job that's being eliminated. Those are being eliminated, and, and you know even the university jobs themselves, those white collar jobs. I mean, I think yeah. those will be decimated. And, and even even at the STEM uh, engineering level, why why do you need a university anymore? I mean, you don't you don't need it, right? I mean, if you if you if you were Einstein in 1930s, you needed a university because that's how you disseminated information. You had to have a group of smart people come together, and they all lived in one little community. Well. We don't need that anymore. You know, Einstein could could do his relativity theories anywhere and and instantly transmit it for absolutely nothing, you know, no cost. And so I don't think we need that whole that whole structure. I think is going to go away, even even for the the professional degrees and and the advanced degrees, because uh, I mean, there'll still be knowledge and learning. I just don't think it's going to be in the in you know this Ivy League model, which is trickled down to community colleges. You, you don't need to go to a building to learn those things anymore. Well, and you kind of bring up another point. It's not just what people learn, but it's the whole concept of disseminating of information. Universities are not just places of learning. They're places of research, right? Research, development, and implementation. And it's getting, and it's along the same thing that you said with um, video editing software, right? 
I, when I, I sat down with uh, with Kelly, who did a lot of video work for us with Parma Ethos, and he said, you don't understand, one effect in Sony Vegas, one effect was a $40,000 piece of technology in the 1980s. One effect you don't even use that's just included in your software bundle. And it, it's that same type of, of technological you know, innovation that a, a person that is a, a researcher can share their research, research across the globe in a very sophisticated manner, ways I don't need, or you don't even understand because it's not our world, that we don't need that, that university system to make that happen anymore. You just don't need it. You know, just you like, need it for some you know, proton lasers or some crap like that. But how many of those things do you really need? You know, and kind of to relate that, again, to either what you or I do right now, what you do now, what you're doing today, 20 years ago, you would have had to have been a broadcaster at an AM radio station Absolutely. to have a talk show. Absolutely. You know, and you do it from, years you, 15 years ago. You do it from your home. You know, 25 years ago, if I wanted to trade stocks the way I do professionally, I couldn't have done it from home. I'd have had to have been, wouldn't have to necessarily be in Wall Street, but I'd have had to have been in a major city that had, um, you know, the downtown financial district of a major city. Yeah. But today, today I, I, I trade 16, 17 million dollars from, uh, you know, from a, I could want to do it from my smartphone if I had to, but and you, you say you, you wouldn't have to be on Wall Street, but you can almost do today what a person that had a seat at the exchange could do yeah, in 1980. Yeah, I could do it today what they couldn't do, and that's the thing that you know people complain about things like oh the high frequency trading and all that. Yeah, those guys they're always going to skim off the top. They're always going to get ahead of us. They're going to they're going to do what they're going to do. But at the same time, 30 years ago, you had these pit bosses that were you know they had to. Yeah, physical guys on the floor screaming about prices. The you know the average broker in Chicago couldn't get what he wanted out of New York because it was going through, you know these these men that were screaming and yelling on the pit floor on Wall Street. Today it's all computer linked up. I know exactly what price I'm going to get. I can push the button and get excellent execution. And so, um, you know, and that's just a, a matter of. A decade or so, these things have changed. They're going to keep changing. And and again, I think for the people that are smart and creative, they're going to get educated. They're going to they're going to find find paths to do it. So the you know the whole research angle. Again, you don't need a university to research. Did um, a lot of things come out of the university model now because they're funded that way from the government, or they at least get the seed money from the government, and then it attracts other um, you know industry type grants and, and money, but. It doesn't. Yeah, I mean, look, look at look at what people now do with crowdsourcing. Yeah, that's that's on a small level, but you, you have that same level of sourcing. Um, will will be through industries. Uh, I, I think uh, you might have mentioned on a recent show. I don't remember. Um, it might have been another conversation I had, but you know, the whole recruiting industry. There used to be professional recruiters. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, it's all LinkedIn now. And again, it's, it's, just a, it's just a change in technology. You still need to link up people with jobs, but you don't have to go through the traditional recruiting route anymore. You can go to LinkedIn. And so money flows to where it's treated best. And um, it's going to flow out of the university system because well, I don't, there's, just there's not a value there. I think it's it, it, it's the elementary public school system. The whole, and the I, whole thing, yeah. I, I get huge pushback on that because everybody says, well, you know, that's that's the bread and butter for the, the, the city and the county governments and their taxes and everything. And it's like, listen, just because they get rid of schools or they downside schools doesn't mean they're going to stop taxing your property. 
They'll come up with other reasons to tax your property. And, and they're going to have this massive bubble of retiring teachers that need to be paid for even when, when there's no new teachers going into that system anymore. And I, I think, like, I'm not saying that by the year 2025 there'll be no public schools. I'm saying there'll be a lot less of them. They'll be smaller. The, 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 the fastest-growing education segment in America today is homeschooling. Yeah. Now, people would say that's because it's the smallest, but if you look at the sheer numbers, I, I think that we're at, at more than uh, 1.6 or 7 million, something like that, homeschooled students in America today. It, whatever it is, it's over a million. Compared to like 20 years ago, it's astronomical. It was weirdos, right, 20 years ago right. that, that did homeschooling. Today, homeschool kids are respected and they're identifiable. I interviewed a couple kids for a farmhand job. I didn't end up hiring this girl because this this 19-year-old young man that came here, I felt needed a shot. And this girl, like, she's going to get plenty of shots. And he was more suited physically to the work. But I'm talking to her and interviewing her, and I said, you're homeschooled, aren't you? I knew she was homeschooled because of how she handled herself, and I meant that in a very positive way. Parents are starting to see this. The technology is enabling it. The only thing that's keeping them alive right now is it's seen as daycare. But if you yeah. go to this economy you're talking about with a, a certain minimum level income and we go back to more of a one-parent household, well, then I don't need daycare. Yep. Well, you know, it's exactly the same thing we talked about with why Apple keeps all their money offshore. It's because of the way the, the rules are structured. And pretty much that's the reason we have the education system we do now because of the way taxes are collected and the way you're compelled to put your kid in a public school and the way it's funded. If, if we had true choice where, you know, even if it was collected through the taxpayers, but the individual parent had a choice as, as to where they send their child, they may not have a homeschool, but I guarantee they wouldn't be sending them to these, you know, most of these public schools that the well, small private schools would, would, you know, form up and I'll, neighborhood I'll make it schools. Simple, John, they spend $11,440 a year per student in Texas on average. Yep. Call it, call it 11.5. It, They say every time a student leaves that system, it hurts. Well, it hurts comparative to other schools because you get a certain, you know, dollars based on body count in the seat. But in the end, it's the same amount of money's going in. Okay? They're still getting those dollars. It's not like they don't get the money now. They're still taking, they're still stealing it from the, the, the people based on their property values. Mm -hmm. If you tomorrow said any parent in the state of Texas can withdraw their child from public school, and receive a grant of $6,000 a year from the same pool of money for private schooling, there would be a 1,000 schools at $6,000 a year that would pop up in the first year. Mm -hmm. Good schools with different curriculum, and they would have more money per student in the public sector for the students that remained. And that is a fundamental that sooner or later will be shifted because it will get so inexpensive for private schooling. And that's the other thing, right? Like that's what's holding that back right now is regulations that say if you're a school, you have to do this and you have to do that. But as you start taking home schools, it has its own little niche. And then you start developing places those kids can go for the parents that do need them to be able to go somewhere. And you start creating different activity levels and things for people to do. You're going to have the market create that demand regardless of what government does. And sooner or later, government's going to have to acquiesce to it. That's the only way they're going to save what they're doing. Because if they say, well, we give every parent a grant for education now, well, then they can justify the theft the same way they've always justified it. Yeah. You know, historically, mankind had always had some type of uh, 
a system where they they trained people to do the jobs that needed to get done. Right. It was uh, it was an apprenticeship system. Yep. And that's that's what we're going to go back to this. These last, you know, 80 years, 100 years have been an aberration. We're, we're going to go back to some kind of an apprenticeship. Because we have these kids, you know, here's the thing. I think they did a thing with the Texas teachers where they tested a whole bunch of them back in the 80s on the graduation test. And most of them couldn't pass it. <laughs> And it's not that they're dumb. It's like that just shows you that most of the information we learn in school is not retained. It's, it's, it's not it's, useful. It doesn't help us. It's useless. You know, again, think about guys like me and you. If if when you were 12, if you could have gone and and worked in some type of a mentorship program, some type of an apprenticeship program, think of how far ahead you would be than you are today. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because I, I wasted. Just give me 12, the internet when I was twelve. I'd be a freaking billionaire right now. Yeah, that part. I mean, I wasted twelve years of my life in school, grade one to twelve. I learned nothing. I, I, I got to say, I agree with you. What I did learn, I didn't need school to learn. Right. I, I'm not going to say I hated everything about school. I had certain classes that I took, especially in high school where you get electives. I took like you know freshwater bio and astronomy and stuff like that because I thought they were interesting. Um, but in general, most of my general classes, what I did learn, I learned by reading the book in the first two weeks of the year, and then I did what I had to do to get through school. I wasted mm-hmm. every second that I, I spent in that facility because even what I did learn, I could have learned without going. And I sure. didn't have a computer, and I did, well, I did. I had a Commodore 128D, right? Uh, yeah, they didn't even have those. And I did have the internet, but those were basically chat boards that you dialed a single number into an individual chat board and stuff. If I would have had access, if I would have had the internet of 2005, oh, in, sure. in, in 1985, um, I, I'd be a billionaire today. Right. Yeah. I have no doubt yeah. about that. Or even if I wasn't, I think I would have. I'm very happy in my life in my 40s. I, I really am. I feel like I found my calling, but I feel like I could have found my calling in my 20s. Absolutely, and that's why I remain so optimistic, e- even when I look at all the social unrest. And the problems that could happen with the economy and all the jobs could be wiped out. I remain extremely optimistic because of where I sit now as a 55 year old and the way I've been able to change and structure my life. Basically because of freedom, right? It, it isn't, I make money now dealing with stocks and things like that, but it, it could be other things, right? I, I could, I could, knowing what I know now, I could make money, you know, woodworking or, being a fishing guide, right? So I could do a lot of other things. I, I Right now, I choose to do stocks because that's what I like to do. But it, it's the knowledge that I have that allows me to live the free lifestyle that I do. And I'm not Einstein. And so if I figured it out how to do it, I yeah. really believe that everybody else can figure it out. Everybody yeah, I mean, people does. say to me, what would you do if you had to quit podcasting for whatever reason right now? I'd take some of the money I have. I'd go buy it for cash, a really nice boat. I'd spend the 200 bucks with the state of Texas and take the week-long course to get my uh, my my guide and captain's license. I got a lake for me full of catfish that's, you know, 15 minutes from my house, and I'd guide fishing trips. Yeah. I, yeah. There's, there's all kinds of ways to make money. Yeah, I mean, and, that's, you're going to like this. A buddy of mine, David, he was over here recently, and we were talking about investing. We were talking about you and how you're telling people. When they say, like, what do I do with $20,000 I have to invest? It's like, don't. Don't keep saving money. And and David's response was, go do something with it. If you have $20,000 and you can't figure out how to make it into $30,000 over the next year, then you don't know what the hell you're doing and you just need to save your money. You should come up with something you can do to to make money. 
Right, and that's exactly why I tell people to save it, though, right? Because people are asking me what to do with it. Well, they don't know what to do with it, so they should be saving it. Yeah. Because they need to invest in themselves at that level. Uh, You know, I said, if if I was a young person right now, cybersecurity is what I'd study. If I was somebody that was really good with my hands, a carpenter-type person or somebody can build – you people could go out now and do van conversions. That's what I would do. I would start tomorrow. I would start a van. In fact, I've even looked at this as a as investing in a company like this. A van. Do you mean like um like and, RVs? You like turning like a van into a mini house? Uh, not a house, but a, a, just an old school RV. Uh, okay. You know, a, ro- a road trek. These Mercedes Sprinter vans, road treks. Yeah. They're, they're a. I mean, they're a van. They're a high top van. One hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Are you telling me you can't buy? Who couldn't buy a, a, a van for $30,000 and upgrade it to some type of a camper for under an additional $100,000? I mean, they're charging $130,000 yeah. for these things. Yeah. Um, if you got creative, you could probably buy a used van for fifteen grand, put fifteen well, yeah. grand into it, and sell it for forty five, and do do three of those a year, and you're at $45,000 a year. And There's a lot of people that don't make $45,000 a year. And that's the beauty of the economy is that it's kind of like a hotel room. This is why I get so frustrated with the government and government controls on things and the way they want to regulate everything, you know, health care and everything. If you go out to a hotel room, I'm, I'm going to be in Vegas next week. I'm going to be speaking at the Freedom Fest in Vegas. Anyways, down there, Nick, by the way. Oh, good come for you, see, come, come and see me. But I'm going to be down at Freedom Fest. So I can go to Vegas, you know, and I can get a hotel room for – say, probably 50 bucks a night, or I could get a hotel room for probably $10,000 a night. Everything in between, right? It's the same way with, with these vans we're talking about. You could go out and buy an old beat-up van and convert it over and sell it for thirty or $40,000, or you could go out and buy a brand-new van for thirty and mark it up to $100,000. I mean, there's the, the, the market is everything in between. It depends on your skill level, how good you are at finishing things, how much capital you have to begin with. You know, to start out with, how much time and effort you want to put into it. Do you have more capital than money? I mean, it's it's people just need to go out and do things. They just need I got to go out for create products and services. I got one for you, and then we'll we'll wrap up because we're at like an hour forty, right? But and without all the other stuff. But um, so years ago, I covered this. There was a guy. He put it. It was in a magazine. It might have been Mother Earth News or something like that. He built an electric motorcycle. He used three of the, the, the gel-style AGM batteries for it so they could go upside down and be mounted in different ways because they're not going to leak. And uh, he used a certain computer chip with some modifications so that it would accelerate without being insane. And what he did is he bought the frame of a motorcycle that was shot, right, just like the motor's done on it. He published every single thing about how he did it, and the key was since it was a a motorcycle that was made by a motorcycle manufacturer with a serial number, it was a roadworthy vehicle that you were able to get tags for. Changing the motor did nothing to that. So he was able to get tags for it, put it on the road, and drive it. It had a range of, I think, like 35, 45 miles on a single charge, and because it wasn't like a Prius, you could indeed charge it up at work and drive home. Like if you had a place you could plug it in, you could charge it up at work. And since it was a motorcycle, it could get into places cars couldn't get all that stuff. And the guy, I don't remember what he built it for, but it wasn't a lot of money. Because you can get the bike, the bike frames for next to nothing unless they're like some special soft tail Harley or something like that. And, you know, like your mid-grade Kawasaki's and stuff is the stuff you build this out of. And I, I said back then, this guy just gave a blueprint for a business. You could build, he built this in like, I think a month, 
And it was the first time he ever did it, and he had to figure everything out. You could probably turn out one of these every week to two weeks as a part-time guy with a good shop. How many of those do you think you could sell in a city like Dallas or Salt Lake or something like that with short-distance commutes? Sure. And, and, and like, who, So who's doing it? Nobody. Nobody. And, and there's just so many opportunities like that. And that's where I think like that's the opportunity going forward, spotting those opportunities and doing them, man. Yeah, but Jack, did he have a degree? No. No, no, no. He was some redneck in like North Carolina or something like that that liked motorcycles and was like he had been building electric bikes and he liked motorcycles and he thought, why not an electric motorcycle? Of course not. And that's, that's, but everybody's worried about getting a degree. You know, you don't, yeah. you don't need Steve Jobs, Bill Gates didn't have degrees. Yeah. And what I loved about it was by using the wrecked frame, you didn't need to go through any bullshit with the state. You just registered it as what it was. Yeah, that's the key. I've seen a lot of people here doing that with just regular cars. Title, what do they call them? Uh, I don't know, refurbished title or something yeah. like title. Um, yeah. That's a that's a really smart idea. And again, that's, that's about out and it was a registerable vehicle. Like you can you can change almost anything about it as long as it's you know you don't do something that makes it no longer street legal. With motorcycles, you don't have to have you know seatbelts obviously or anything. So that's and that's about getting get, instead of complaining about things, go out and do it. You know, I was on a plane not too long ago, a couple of months ago. I was telling the story, and I had forgotten I'd brought in this stupid little uh, one of those little credit card uh, multi tools with me. I mean, it had a, just a little sharp edge on it. TSA took it away from me because you know I was gonna could hijack a plane or something with it because it had a little sharp edge. But, you know, you can carry, and I know you know this, you can carry scissors up to four inches on a plane, right? You can't you can't carry a knife of any, with any size blade, zero. A half an inch knife, you can't carry it. But you can carry scissors with a four-inch blade. Yeah. So don't argue about it. Just carry the stupid scissors, which is what I do. You know, I have the scissors in my bag. I don't carry a knife anymore when I fly, but I carry scissors. So don't complain about stuff. Just go out and do it. Adapt to it. So, John, uh, for people that maybe haven't heard you before on the show, how do they uh, learn more about you, listen to your podcast, possibly talk to you about handling their investments, all of that stuff? Yeah, easiest way to find me is just uh, Google Wealthsteading. It's a Wealthsteading podcast. It's on iTunes. Um, it, it, that's They can find me through that website. Investable Wealth is my actual investment firm, but um, Wealthsteading is a good place to find me. I put everything out there uh, that I that – I, once I make an investment, I talk about it on the podcast in a blog, all the information's out there. Very cool, man. Well, I appreciate you being with us today, and uh, thank you for all you do to help our community. Hey, Jack, thank you. Thank, and congratulations again on your granddaughter. Yeah, all, it's a pretty happy deal. For thanks, thanks for all you do for us. And again, thank you for being with us today, John. You know, when I have John up for an interview, it's more like just he and I having a discussion. I think we talked for 45 minutes before we started the interview. And another 20 after the interview, uh, before I went ahead to record this uh, follow-up. That just kind of tells you the kindred spirit John is with me. And I hope you guys learned some stuff from that, and it gives you a way to think about your future. And at this point, I want to remind you, if you like the work I do here at the Survival Podcast and you'd like to support it, the best way to do that, the number one way to do that is become a member of my support brigade. You could do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members there to learn more. And uh, you can sign up right there online with PayPal, or you can sign up using the, uh, the form and mailing it in with cash, check, money order. And I do accept barter. If you have something you want to barter for a year of MSB, email me about it. Let me know what that would be, and we'll discuss it. Uh, the other thing I accept is Bitcoin. And uh, sometimes that Bitcoin button doesn't work well when you try to pay. If that happens, 
just email me. We'll figure it out and get you guys set up with Bitcoin on MSB. Uh, Bitcoin, I think, is a wonderful way to stop using their money and use our own money. So I am a big fan of Bitcoin. Next up, the other way you can help support the work that I do here, and it's the easiest way that there ever could be, is go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, anytime and every time that you want to shop on Amazon. Just go to tspaz.com. That's it. That's all you got to do. You'll see the TSP Amazon item of the day. It'll be an item that I personally recommend and use and have done research on and uh, say is a good item for your prepping needs or just for your life. Uh, sometimes it'll be a kitchen item. Who knows what it'll be? All, all different every day. You can go anytime just to see what it is. But then go ahead and just do your shopping. If you're not interested in that item, it doesn't matter. Buy the stuff you were going to buy anyway. Spend the exact same amount of money you were going to spend anyway. Get to see a cool item of the day. And type in one less letter because T-SPAS is one less letter than Amazon. And we get credit for your business on Amazon, and that helps support our show. It costs you nothing, and if it's worth your time to listen, it's probably worth your time to go to T-SPAS instead of Amazon when you shop on Amazon, and we really appreciate that. Uh, it's been working really well for us, and thank you to everybody who uses T-SPAS for your Amazon shopping. Again, T-S-P-A-Z, T-SPAS.com, and you'll just show up at Amazon. Today's Amazon item of the day is the Gerber Dime. What is the Gerber Dime? If you don't know, go to T-SPAS and find out or take a look at the write-up on the blog for today's TSP Amazon item of the day. And that brings us to our closing song today. This one is a song that was actually... New to me, I, I kind of fancy myself the guy that knows music from the late 60s, early 70s, all the way through the 80s and 90s, and I actually tend to need help about music like from today. That's what I don't really know much about is today's music. Um, but this is an old song by Van Morrison. Yes, brown-eyed girl guy yet, right? Van Morrison. Um, and I've always liked Van Morrison, but I've, I never had actually heard this song. It's called Cleaning Windows. And... Uh, Somebody sent it to me, and I realized something. This is this is a lot like Jimmy Buffett's song, It's My Job. You'll have to look that up if you want to see it and see the correlation. They're actually different, but the same. In the words of uh, Tommy Chong, it's the same but different, man. Okay, um, But this song is about you know, not letting your place in life dictate your happiness because you know you're destined for greater things. This is actually about... Van's actual life when he was a window cleaner. Um, he says from the, the song, on, on the, oh, the smell of the bakery from across the street got in my nose. We carried our ladders down the street with wrought iron gate rows. I went home and listened to Jimmy Rogers in my lunch break, bought five woodbines at the shop on the corner, and went straight back to work. Woodbines are cigarettes, by the way. So, I mean, you know, he's out, he's working, he can smell the bakery, picks up some smokes. Not that I advise you to do that, but, you know, uh, gets to go home for work, listens to Jimmy Rogers. Says, oh, Sam was on top and I on the bottom with the V. We went for lemonade and Paris buns at the shop, at the shop and broke for tea. I collected from the lady and I cleaned the fan light inside out. I was blowing saxophone on the weekend in that down joint. So he's playing his music, perfecting his craft, but making enough money to pay the bills. What's my line? I'm happy cleaning windows. Take my time. I'll see you when my love grows. Baby, don't let it slide. I'm a working man in my prime, cleaning windows. I'm a working man in my prime. So you think about being a window cleaner, cleaning fan blades and stuff like that. Not, not, not the greatest job in the world. And a lot of us... 
at some point in our life had jobs that weren't really that great. And what this makes me think about is my first job after I got out of the Army, I worked for a company called Home Interiors and Gifts. And at that job, I started out, I made uh, $5.90 an hour. And uh, within 30 days, they offered me full-time employment. I went there as a temp, and I got a raise to 7 bucks. Big old raise to 7 bucks an hour. This would have been 1994. And, uh, you know, I worked that job with people that had been there for a very, very long time. Kind of like I talked about today, you know, seeing people that are working jobs I did when I was a teenager, and they're in their 40s, and just wondering, you know, is are they stuck, or do they want to be there? And, you know, we'd talk at lunch. And I, you know, I'd spend all day packing these boxes or unloading trucks in this warehouse. And in the summer in Texas, an unconditioned air, unconditioned air, unair conditioned warehouse would be 120 degrees in there, just killing myself. But working like that, you know, I was getting in, you know, kind of getting back into military shape almost because, you know, after my walk and what have you, I took a walk for those that don't know when I got out of the military from uh, Pennsylvania to uh, to New Hampshire on the Appalachian Trail. I didn't three hike it, but I through hike it, but I hiked. Uh, about a, about a thousand miles of trail, and uh, you know I was in incredible shape. But I, I came down here to Texas and I was on unemployment and uh, worked some part time stuff before I got this job and, and went through the first winter and kind of was depressed and spent a lot of time at home alone and kind of had lost that real real shape, you know. Get back into this and it's just out there, just busting it every day, you know. And I talked to people and at lunch and breaks and stuff and. I'd listen to them talk, and I, I'd realize that we're different people. We're doing the same job, but we're different people. These people were thinking, like, a better job might be another dollar an hour, and I was thinking, you know, I'm going to take on the world. I'm going to be successful. And when you hear the politics come out was when you really saw it. Most of these people were for things like, you know, higher taxes for the rich and all. And I wasn't, and they'd wonder why. And I said, because one day that's going to be me. You know, and they'd kind of laugh at all. Some of these guys are 30, 40 years old. Someone probably close to 50 years old. And here's this uh, 22-year-old kid, you know, uh, killing himself, working as hard as he could in this, this job pack of boxes. And they think you're working too hard. And I was actually enjoying myself on some levels because I knew I wasn't stuck there. That's what this is about. Doing the best you can with what you have, but realizing it's not where you're, where you're at in life. And that's the key to adapting to the change John and I talked about today. You have to be looking ahead, not just to the now. I figured that would be a good way to look at things going into your weekend. I hope you enjoy your Friday. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Oh, smell of the baby from across the street. Got in my nose. Yeah, we carried our letters down the street with the Royal Iron Cage Rose. I went home and listened to Jimmy Rogers in my lunch break. Bought five wood pine at the shop on the corner. And went straight back to work Oh, Sam was up on top And I was on the bottom with the V We 
at the shop and broke the tea. That's it. I collected from the lady and I cleaned the fan light inside out. I was blowing saxophone on the weekend in a down joint. What's my life? I'll help be cleaning windows. Take my time. I'll see you when my love grows. Baby, don't let it slide. I'm a working man in my prime. Cleaning windows. Number 36.